Guys, good morning. It's so good to be with you here on this Lord's Day. If you would, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word. Go to Joel chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Joel chapter 1. Joel, it's easy to pass over it. It's only three chapters, so it's a little bit hard to find in that big Old Testament, all right? But to give you some help here, if you find the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's big. And then there's the book of Daniel right after the book of Ezekiel. And if you'll just go to the right a little bit further, you'll find the book of Hosea. And then after Hosea, you'll find Joel. So Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. And that's where we will be for the next six weeks. Would you join me in prayer? So Father, in the strong name of Jesus, we come and we open your word. Father, you tell us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all of scripture is breathed out by God and so that includes the the prophet Joel here and that not only is it breathed out by God but because it's breathed out by God father you tell us that it's it's useful it's good to build up your people and so in the name of of Jesus God we come to you today and ask that you would do that in us through the prophecy of Joel father as we encounter things and themes and 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 places and and ideas Lord that may seem very foreign to us God would you help us to bridge those 2,000 to 3,000 years Lord that we might have a word that meets us right where we are right here in 2023. And Father, I pray through the preaching of your word, not only will you make your people closer to you, draw your people closer, but God, but I pray that you would draw people who are far off from you. Lord, I have no doubt in my mind because of the size of this crowd here this morning that there is a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl who has walked in these doors today who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. Now I pray that through the preaching of your word, even through the prophet Joel, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sins and draw them to the cross of Christ that they might be saved. Father, that is our heart's desire and that's your desire father so we thank you this morning for the preaching of your word may you do what only you can do father and that is to touch hearts and to change minds and so we ask this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said amen and amen well Joel chapter one but before we get to Joel chapter one consider this King Solomon By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he poetically summed up the complexities of life when he said this in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. He said, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted, a time to kill and a time to heal a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, 
a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Beloved, indeed, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And as we turn this morning to the book of Joel, we will see that there is also a time to turn. A time to turn. That's the title of the sixth message series that we're about to embark on as we walk through the book of Joel. Joel is a plea from God to God's people to turn from any and every aspect of godlessness that we see in our life and in our land before the heavy hand of the discipline of the Lord falls on us. And it's a plea to the people who are not yet God's people to turn from any and every sin before it is everlastingly too late. As we turn here to this book, it's timely for us to preach through this in one sense because there's been so much talk lately about revival, right? Given the, the news of what seems to be a, a, a revival that's broken out on the campus of Asbury University and seminary there in Wilmore, Kentucky, just southwest of Lexington, Kentucky. For 12 days now, they've continuously gathered for prayer and praise and preaching. They've been testifying. They've been confessing. They've done many other things. And there are already all sorts of marks that we're seeing of revival right there in this outbreak of the Holy Spirit there. But the one and the first, the most telling mark of revival is this is an outbreak of recognizing one's sinfulness and turning from that sin, repenting of that sin and turning to God for cleansing and forgiveness. And praise God, I have read reports that there have indeed been several instances of that happening right there on that campus of Asbury. And so what an opportunity we have through the book of Joel to lay a foundation that God might use to bring true revival right here to Collinsville, Mississippi. Now, when God laid this book on my heart, I mean, the, 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 the revival hadn't even broken out yet at Asbury, but in God's good providence, the book of Joel is very timely for us in that regard. And so I can't wait. I'm excited to see how the Lord will use this book in the life of his people to bring about, maybe, certainly we pray, individual revival, but what if God would break out corporately here? A corporate revival. That would be amazing. Just a little bit about the book of Joel here. In typical prophetic phrasing, we read there in Joel 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, the book of Joel is not just some random dude's thoughts. That, that, that phrase right there in the beginning, the word of the Lord is very important to us that we understand what this is. This is a direct word from God spoken through his prophet to his people. And all these words, although these words, they, they come through the mouth and the pen of the prophet here, they are God's direct words. 
And who is this prophet? Well, honestly, about the only thing that we know about him for sure is that he has a name and that his daddy had a name. That's about all that we know for sure about this prophet there. Verse one, Joel, it says, the son of Pethuel. Now, Joel, Joel itself is an anglicized version of the Hebrew name Yael, Yael, right? We would say Joel, they would say Yael, okay? Yael. And it literally means the Lord is God. Anytime you see in a name Joe or Yah, that, that, that's, that's short for Yahweh, the Lord. And anytime you see in a name, the two letters L, that is the Hebrew word for God. And so Yah El, the Lord is God. What a, pro, what a fitting and proper name, right? For a, for a prophet. But then look at his daddy's name, Pethuel. Pethuel literally means vision of God. So this prophecy here that we're about to dig into, it comes from a man named the Lord is God, who was the son of the vision of God. So what fitting names here as we turn into this book. But as far as for sure, that's all we know about him. That's it. Everything else we can say about him, we, we say by inference. It's likely that he was neither a priest nor an elder because he addresses both groups in this prophecy in a way that communicates that he's outside of those groups. It's likely that he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. If you'll remember, under King David, the kingdom was united, all 12 tribes of Israel together as one nation, and that carried on under David's son Solomon. But when Solomon died, the kingdom split into two nations, the northern kingdom, which carried the proper name Israel and commonly went by the name Ephraim, and the southern kingdom, which took the proper name of Judah. Judah. And so here we see the content of Joel. It pushes us to believe that, that he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so when did he prophesy to that bunch? Well, that's a really good question because... There's absolutely nothing definitive in this book that locates it in time. Scholars, they're fairly even, uh, evenly divided on the date of Joel. Pretty much all of them place this prophecy after the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians in 722. So it was after that, but they disagree as to whether it was before or after the destruction of Judah and the exile of the Jews by Babylon that began in 605. So some would argue that it was pre-exile while others would argue that it's post-exile. But at the end of the day, here's the deal. We have to be content with saying we just don't know. But I do know this. If the Lord had wanted us to know, don't you think he would have told us? And so there's a reason, God has his reason for that. And it very well might be that God desired to have a prophecy here that is timeless, that every generation can look at and say, this is my prophecy. We can so easily look at, at, at our history and find relevance to it that we might turn back to God away from sin. And here in chapter one, God addresses a, a category of events that is always a good time to turn. It's what I prefer to call calamity. Calamity, now that might not be a word that you often use, but calamity by definition 
by definition, is, is a, uh, it's a word that, that basically means a disastrous event marked by great loss, lasting distress, and suffering. It's, it's synonymous with a disaster, with a, a catastrophe, with a cataclysm. But calamity is a word that I like to use as a theological umbrella term for when I'm simply talking about bad things that happen in this world. So calamity is all of the bad events that happen in this life. But under the term calamity, under that umbrella here, I wanna recognize two subcategories. This is important for us to get distinct in our minds. One we would call natural calamity. Natural calamity. And the other one we would call moral calamity. So under that big umbrella of calamity, we have natural and we have moral calamities, okay? Those two categories there underneath that. Natural calamity, what is that? Well, that, that's the bad things that happen in the world that are just part of living in a fallen world. They include acts of nature like tornadoes or, 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 or perhaps uh, attacks by bears. <laughs> they also include accidents that lead to damage or injury or even death like slipping and falling off a cliff or twisting your ankle or, or rear-ending another car on the road or even developing cancer. These bad things are just part of living in a fallen world and do not arise directly out of human sin. So therefore, in that sense, these events are what we would call amoral, right? Neither moral nor immoral. They, although are bad, they are not what we would call sinful. They are morally neutral. Now, the other category besides natural calamity is what we would call moral calamity. And moral calamity is, is not morally neutral. It arises out of the heart of sinful human beings. Under this category would be things like murder, assault and battery, theft, arson, home wrecking, terrorism. I mean, the list could go on and on, right? These are bad things that somebody did with full intention, right? They meant to harm you. They meant to rob you. They meant to draw your spouse away. They meant to strike fear in you. And so moral calamity is always sinful. But in general, calamity, whether it's natural or moral, is always a good time to turn back to God. And so today I want to challenge you with this takeaway. Here's today's takeaway. I want to call you this morning to embrace the good outcomes of calamity in this world. The title of today's message is Blessed, Blessed Calamity. Blessed Calamity. And I pray this morning that, that, that God will help us to see that, to embrace those good outcomes of calamity in this world. Now, please do not misunderstand what I just said, okay? I'm in no way claiming here that calamity itself is good. When Hurricane Katrina hit the southern coast in 2005, that was bad. When the tornado struck the church here on Groundhog's Day 2016, that was bad. Beloved, when your baby miscarried, that was bad. When that big buck deer ran out of that field and T-boned your minivan and totaled it, that was bad. When that man was found on 18th Avenue Meridian last month, shot to death with multiple gunshot wounds, that 
was bad. When your loved one died of that disease, that was bad. And when that person assaulted you back in the day, hear me this morning, that was bad. So calamity itself is not good, it's bad. But we stand on the promise of God from Romans 8, 28 that says, for those who love God, all things work together for good, those who are called according to his purpose. And so while not everything is good, in fact, many things are exceedingly bad, all things work together. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So God here through prophet Joel is calling us to embrace the good outcomes of calamity in this world. Calamity is always a good time to turn. So if we're going to embrace the good outcomes of calamity in this world, then I believe that God through Joel here wants us to understand the following three things about calamity. And here's the first thing that we need to understand this morning is that calamity is a fact of life for us in this cursed cosmos. Calamity is a fact of life for us in this cursed cosmos. Look, the book of Joel here starts out recounting a, a terrible calamity in the life of Judah, a plague of locusts, which would fall under the category of what we would call natural calamity. Look here at verses two through four, Joel one, two through four. It says, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now you may have heard of a locust before, but, but maybe you're not entirely sure what a locust is. Well, a locust is essentially... <laughs> A grasshopper, all right? That's what a locust is. A locust is a species of grasshopper. So while all locusts are grasshoppers, this is an important distinction, not all grasshoppers are locusts. So there are about 11,000 subspecies of grasshoppers, but only about 20 of them are locusts. You say, well, what's the difference? How do I know the difference? Well, it's actually in their ability. Here's the difference between a grasshopper and a locust, a regular grasshopper and a locust. It's their ability and propensity to swarm, okay? Their ability and their propensity to swarm. You see, your typical grasshopper, he is happy to live his entire life all by himself. And locusts, they typically do as well, but the difference is, is that a locust, given the right condition, has the ability to swarm. You see, when a series of factors come together, it forces locusts to, growl, uh, to crowd to each other. And when they begin to crowd, they begin to rub up against each other and, and, and their serotonin levels, lie, uh, they begin to rise up. And all of a sudden, this rapid onset of, of this behavior switches on. They brush up against each other and this causes this chemical switch to flip in their body so that they begin to swarm together and they all of a sudden have this voracious appetite that leads to a feeding frenzy. Sometimes it's drought that pushes them together. 
Sometimes it's a flood that pushes them together. Sometimes it's some other factor, but whatever the factor is, whatever the condition is, when they begin to rub up against one another, watch out because here they come. Scientists tell us that in a locust plague, you could have up to 31 million locusts per square mile. <laughs> 31 million locusts per square mile and swarms get as big as 460 square miles. And here in the text, the Lord through Joel here, he talks about a cutting locust and a swarming locust and a hopping locust and a destroying locust. Well, what's the difference? Well, actually nothing scientifically, right? That, that's, a, that's a prophetic, poetic way of saying that these locusts destroyed everything. It was utter devastation. And that's what we see here in the land of Judah. A locust swarm had descended upon the land and the results were catastrophic, right? This is, this is what, again, what we call natural calamity. Look at Joel 1, six through seven. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste with my vine and splintered my fig tree. It's stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. As you hear that, man, that's absolutely terrifying, isn't it? Skip down to verse 10. The fields, it says, are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. And so this is a very serious situation, right? They, not like us, see, we don't live field to mouth, right? We have a few in intermediaries between. But they would literally, what they would pick, they would eat. And I know y'all think groceries just come from the grocery store. <laughs> but it's easy for us to think that because that's all we ever see. But beloved, whether we realize it or not, we are, we are field to table as well. And so this was catastrophic. It was catastrophic. And this happened just intermittently over the, the history of Israel and Judah. You see, that's why this event itself doesn't really help us pin down when this happened. It, it happened over and over again. Now you might be thinking, man, boy, I'm glad I don't live in the Middle East. Well, you gotta understand this isn't just a Middle East phenomenon. It happens all over the world. In fact, a terrible locust plague happened right in America in 1874. 1874, that year, this famous, enormous swarm of Rocky Mountain locusts invaded the Great Plains. The swarm was estimated to cover over 200,000 square miles. Well, but that is four times the state of Mississippi. 200,000 square miles. They estimate that there were not, 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 not millions, not billions, but trillions of locusts and they came through and it was devastating. And that's the situation that we see here with Judah. The, the locust swarm very likely could have been brought on by this nearby regional drought that then extended into Judah after the locusts came through. Look at verse 12. We see drought begin to talk about the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. And then skip down to verse 17 and 18. 
Still talking about drought here. The, the seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. So you've got the locust plague and then you've got a drought. And then on top of that, when everything was eaten and everything was dried out and burnt up, the situation was ripe for an actual fire. Look at verse 19 and 20. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. I mean, have you ever seen such calamity? A plague of locusts followed by a drought, followed by a wildfire. And when we see these things come, guys, we're often quick to jump to this question. Oh my goodness, who sinned? Who sinned that brought this on? And you know what the answer is? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Yeah, there. Listen, calamity can certainly be brought about as a result of our contemporary sin or someone else's. But honestly, we don't know when that's the situation. But here's what we can be sure of: is that any and all calamity is an indirect result of Adam and Eve's sin. You see, before the fall, there was absolutely no calamity. But as a result of their sin, the Bible tells us that God cursed the entire cosmos. Genesis 3, 14 through 19 is where we see this curse. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have caused Adam and Eve and tempted them to sin, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then God turns to the woman, turns to Eve here. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then he turns to Adam. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and the dust you shall return that's exactly what we see being played out right here in the life of Judah through prophet Joel beloved that is a life in the cursed cosmos. There is going to be trouble. There's going to be destruction. There's going to be calamity. In fact, it's a fact of life for us in this cursed cosmos. So that's the first thing that we've got to understand if we're going to embrace the good outcomes of calamity in this world. But secondly, we must see this. Calamity always calls for a godly response from us. 
Calamity always calls for a godly response from us. Yeah, it's a part of life. So the question is not, will calamity happen? No, the question, the real question is, what will we do when calamity happens? And our text calls us to a four-step godly response in the face of every calamity. Wake up, lament, be ashamed, and repent. Let's walk through those real quickly here. These are the four steps of a godly response in the face of every single calamity. The first step is to wake up. You see this step right in verse five there. Joel 1, 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail. All you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. In other words, sinners, wake up. Right There are times and seasons in our life where we begin to slide away from the Lord, don't we? There are times and seasons in our life when we slide into sinful habits. Here's the sin of drunkenness, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be any sin that you and I dabble with or even that we habituate in, right? It could be lying, sinful anger, pornography, gossip. I mean, any number of things. And God is saying that every calamity is an occasion to wake up to the sinfulness that is in our life. Now you might be saying, what? Well, hold on preacher, you just told us a moment ago that we often can't directly link our sin to the calamity itself and that's true. You may not have some particular grievous sin that brought that calamity into your life, but listen to me. Every time you experience calamity, it is an opportunity to take stock of your life and to see if there's any unclean thing in you. That's what King David did. That's what King David said in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. King David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. King David didn't say, I, I know I've sinned. He said, God, I expect that somewhere in my life I've fallen short of the glory of God. And so every calamity that you experience or that you even hear about is an opportunity to wake up and to see if there's any unclean aspect of your life. And listen, undoubtedly there is. Undoubtedly there's some part of your life that falls short of the glory of God. And I pray that you would awaken to that and open your eyes. The second step of godly response in the face of every calamity is to lament. So you wake up, then you lament. Like, look at, look at Joel 1.8 here. Lament, he commands us, like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. To lament is to grieve. And the picture here is very, very descriptive, right? It pictures here this intense grief that's like the, the kind of grief that you would have if your fiance died right before your wedding day. Love, we can't help but grieve when something bad happens. That's, that's natural for us. 
calamity brings about great loss. It's heartbreaking. So lamenting, grieving is natural, but I think that God here is calling us to look past that bad event itself. And when calamity comes and it pushes us to search our own wicked hearts, we become aware of our sin. And then the only right response is grief. You see, our sin is sad. Today, we don't see a lot of sadness over sin, right? We see people taking pride in their sin, even parading their sin in the streets and on various media. And I'm not just talking about one segment of society. I'm talking about the entirety of society. But they should be and we should be lamenting. Like Ezra and the people of Israel in Ezra 10.1, after they came back from exile, they were awakened to their sin and then they began to lament. Look what it says there. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. I think it's so interesting here that Ezra as the leader of God's people at that time was leading them to lament. In fact, that's what our text calls leaders to do in Joel 1.13. Look at Joel 1.13. It says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Well, O minister of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth. O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. You see, the priests were the very spiritual leaders of Israel and it's, it's every spiritual leader's job to lead out in lamenting our sin. Not just the pastor, but the leader of the home. And again, not for their sin, no, the finger points back to us, to our sin, our sin, our sin. So may we see our sin and lament over it. May our eyes be open to our trespasses and may we grieve over it. But the third step of a godly response in the face of every calamity is to be ashamed, to be Ashamed. Look at verse 11 here, Joel 1, 11. He says, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. And I, as I see this, you might say, well, that sounds a lot like grief. And, and it probably is in some ways, but I also see it as different because shame is not just grieving, but it's taking responsibility for your sin. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I let myself walk into that. I can't believe I pursued that. And that's when shame comes in. You realize, we, we love to use language that's passive, like I, I, I just fell into sin. No, you didn't. No, I didn't. I walked into it. I saw it. I pursued it. I walked and I began to run and then I had it. I was the trespasser. And now that my eyes have been opened to it and my, my grief has become real, now I'm ashamed 
of my sin. Beloved, that's why Adam and Eve, when God came looking for them after they fell, they hid from God. Do you remember that? They hid from God. Why? Because they were ashamed. That's why the prodigal son, after he had come to his senses and decided upon his return to his father's house that he would just live with the slaves. Why? Because he was ashamed of how he had sinned against his father. And beloved, I want you to understand that honestly, that's the right emotion to feel if we are going to have a godly response in the face of every calamity. But finally, we repent. That's the fourth That's the fourth step in this process that we see here. Yeah, we see our sin and yeah, we lament over it and yeah, we're ashamed of it. We don't stop at that. Again, think about when the prodigal came back. What did the father do? When the son came repenting, the father received him, right? He turned back to the father and and called upon the father and the father received him. and, And that's a picture of God in our lives. If we'll turn back, to the Father, he will receive us. If we'll call on the Lord, he will answer us. Look at verse 14 here in Joel 1. We see that call right here. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. We see it in verse 19. It says, to you, O Lord, I call. I want to come into the presence of the Lord. I want to return to the presence of the Lord. I want to turn from sin and turn to God. And again, you might be thinking, then I did not do anything wrong to bring this calamity on myself. Think of the book of Job. And again, you're right. You may not have. Not specifically, but remember, every calamity is an opportunity to turn back to God. I know that there are lots of folks in this room who were not alive on September 11, 2001, when terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center, but I was alive, and for those of you who were alive, you remember how awful that calamity was, right? But do you remember the fruit of that spiritually that came out of that? Do you remember people? I mean, attendances in churches rose immediately. People wanted to be together. They wanted to be in the house of God. They wanted to sing praises to God. You see guys, that's what I'm talking about here. We saw sweep across our nation, people repenting, people coming back to God in the wake of September 11th. And that's what I believe is talked about here, right? You may not have caused a crisis, but don't let that calamity go to waste. Use it, use it to make yourself more holy, to bring yourself closer to God. Embrace the good outcomes of calamity in this world, right? Let the calamity have full effect in your life. You see, that's what Jesus said we should do. Some folks asked him one time about some people who had died at the command of Pilate, Pontius Pilate. They had been wickedly put to death. They were innocent, and yet Pilate had them killed. We read in Luke 13, 1. It says there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. These were people who were just going about to worship. 
And yet here comes the Roman soldiers slicing them down along with their sacrifices. And what was Jesus' response? Don't miss this this morning, church. Luke 13, verse two and three. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus immediately pivoted from that moral calamity to tell them you need to repent because of that. Repent because of that. And then he actually goes a step further. And he pivots from moral calamity to natural calamity. Look at verse four and five, Luke 13, verse four and five. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so beloved, this morning, you gotta see this. The end goal of every calamity that we experience, every calamity that we hear of, the ultimate goal is our repentance, our turning back to God. And that's a good outcome of calamity that we should embrace every single time. And so I pray that, 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 that people would see this godly response coming out of our life. But finally this morning, if we're gonna embrace the good outcomes of calamity in this world, we must understand that calamity prepares us for the impending day of the Lord. Look at verse 15 in Joel 1 here. Joel 1, 15. Alas, the Bible says, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Beloved, every calamity on earth points us to that great eschatological calamity that's coming upon the entire earth at the end of the age. It's called here the day of the Lord. And every calamity is just a foretaste of that great and terrible day. Well, That'll be our focus next week. We're gonna come and we're gonna think on that day. You say, I don't know if I wanna come back. <laughs> Beloved, let the word of God do what it's supposed to do. This prophecy is in here for your edification. And not every message is gonna be a high, slappy, clappy celebration of what God is doing in our midst. Sometimes it's falling our faces before God and saying, woe is me, for I'm undone. For I am unclean and I live among people who are unclean. Listen, I'm not sure what you've been through or even what you're going through right now, but I pray that as you go through those things that you would embrace the good outcomes of calamity in this world. Remember, the calamity is not good, but God intends good outcomes. And so here's my final prayer this morning.
may you come to see aspects of blessing in even the worst moments of life. When the locusts come and then the drought comes and then the wildfire comes, may you hold fast to God and know that he's gonna bring good out of that.